You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, supporting your registrar to provide best practice care for nursing home residents. Presented by Dr. Julie Mallinson. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. It's a really good opportunity actually to speak to GP supervisors to encourage registrars to learn more about aged care, to do more aged care. Uh, It's a huge, huge area. I think it goes without saying, to be honest, everybody is getting older and there's a huge need in aged care facilities to have doctors who want to be there and who are keen. And so this is what this is about. And um, yeah, I'm really glad to be able to talk and hopefully to be able to shed some light on what happens in the aged care realm. There's lots of people in aged care of all different ages, but when I ever speak about a patient to their families or to my family, I'll often say, oh, they're quite young. And when I say that, I usually mean 70 to 80 because this really reflects, there's a lot of old, I think they're called the very, very old officially, but there's a lot of very, very old people in aged care. I think I've got three people who are over 100 at the moment. There's a lot of variability, but certainly a lot of frail elderly people with lots of medical issues. There's a lot more females in aged care than males. There's barriers for anybody doing aged care, but there's certainly barriers for registrars doing aged care. And hopefully I can kind of address some of those or kind of help the supervisors address those as we talk. Up to 40% of recent graduates are working in some aged care role. So that's a lot of people who are coming out of, I suppose, the hospital system often and then going to work in aged care and GP registrars of all different levels of experience. When I've been doing aged care in my previous job, I was supervising registrars and we had a really, really big range of experience, I suppose. So that was different for me to know what kind of needs they had as well. So the things that I'm going to cover is dementia and BPSD, behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia, which I will always call BPSD from now on. UTIs, asymptomatic bacteria, palliative care, which is, I suppose, my special interest and I think is pretty important in aged care. It affects probably 99.9% of patients in aged care. Most people end up with a palliative care need. Falls, delirium, paperwork and organisational aspects of aged care work, medical legal issues. I think of those 77% who do aged care, unless the other states are very different than New South Wales, which I'm pretty sure they're not, paperwork is a huge component of aged care and there's no getting around that. And I suppose how do we make that work for us and for the best health of the residents? And I think if you looked at the barriers to why people don't want to do aged care, especially registrars, I think it would be the paperwork and probably palliative care. So hopefully I'll talk about those and I'll make them seem a little bit more or less daunting. So what are the common conditions in aged care? Dementia is the most common condition, which is obvious, six times more frequently, which is interesting because I think the dementia that I deal with is very different than the dementia people in general practice deal with. I never have to do a driver's medical. I never have that problem. I don't really make the diagnosis of dementia very often because most people already have dementia. So it's more dealing with the behaviours of dementia rather than that early on, is it dementia, is it not dementia? Other common conditions, urinary tract infections, depression, cardiac failure, chronic skin ulcers. So that's the RSCGP, which is definitely, I mean, my, I've done three rounds this week and 
every single one would have a few of each of those in it. So the first person we're going to talk about is Beryl. Beryl is 87. Your GPT2, the Term 2 Registrar Yin, asked you for some help with Beryl. Beryl is 87 and she has a diagnosis of dementia. The staff have expressed concerns regarding Beryl because she's had quite disruptive behaviour. She's calling out, she's wandering and she's refusing to be assisted. Yin's quite uncertain what to do and she doesn't know whether to start her on medication. So what would we do here? So is the best thing to start PRN risperidone at a low dose? So I'm talking a very low dose, 0.25 to 0.5 daily. So it's PRN risperidone daily. Is risperidone the best antipsychotic in Lewy body dementia? Is there evidence that cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine are useful in BPSD? And should patients on risperidone be reviewed every six months and attempted to wean them off those medications? So one of those is correct. The whole use of antipsychotics is changing every few weeks, literally. In my reading this week and in my dealing with geriatricians, which is quite a lot because they, they know me by first name, unfortunately, for them, PRN risperidone is not recommended. They're not recommending PRN medications in dementia and BPSD. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and I think the Royal Commission has really changed that. There's been a lot of media regarding risperidone, the antipsychotics, and the silver book. I had a look into the recommendations, and they're quite strongly saying don't use PRN as a first off. I'll talk a bit about weaning antipsychotics, but they are saying don't start off with a PRN medication. And I think it's very, very user-dependent, and that's the main issue, that it's user-dependent. And I was just kind of trying to practice what I preach this week and looking through my patients on PRN medications, and I inherited a few a few months ago and I hadn't looked at them. And one of the men was on PRN risperidone and he meets me at the door every day with he's got all his trophies in his walker and he's colouring in. And he meets me at the door and he counts the cars every day and then talks to me and shows me all his trophies every day. He's on PRN risperidone and we looked at when he'd been given it and he'd actually been given it for following the staff around and talking to them constantly. And it was classified as an intrusive behaviour. Now, if I gave everybody who followed me around talking constantly, PRN risperidone, my whole family and my two dogs would be on it probably. We just can't do that. And I think that would be, you know, if this man had a fall, had a side effect of an antipsychotic, I think, if, you know, the doctor has written up a PRN medication, it's been used incorrectly, but it's very open to interpretation. So they're not recommending we use PRN risperidone. It can have some pretty severe side effects in Lewy body dementia. The third one is the correct answer. There is evidence that cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine can be used. There's a lot of evidence and a lot of the geriatricians are using those. And I don't think we need to know or teach our registrars about that, but I think it makes us realise that referral is important and referral early is important. And I refer lots of people early because we can't prescribe those. So I don't think anyone needs to hesitate to refer. I know it's there's people all over Australia and I don't know how easy it is for some people to get a geriatrician, but if I can't get someone, I'll actually bring the on-call geriatrician at our local hospital and document it, what they've said. And they're always happy to speak to me and they're always just say, I just want to back you up. Um, I'm happy for you to do this. I'm happy for you not to do this. And the last one was the interesting one. Patients on risperidone should be reviewed every six months and a documented attempt to wean. Now that's probably changed in the last since the Royal Commission, and that's actually 12 weeks now. 
you need to review them every 12 weeks and you need to write in your notes when you're going to wean and you need to sign psychotropic forms every 12 weeks and at least try or at least document why you're not trying to wean. And that's, I think, is on the authority prescribing now. You actually have to, when you do an authority, you actually have to say that it's less than 12 weeks. So that's a big change that's happened because of the Royal Commission and because there was a lot of people who were found that being put on risperidone for and didn't really need it or had a lot of severe side effects. And I suppose I'll get to the common side effects. I don't diagnose dementia a lot. 90% is Alzheimer's dementia, but there are people who have Lewy body dementia and they have a really, really severe reaction to antipsychotics. And they're the people that you see that are having lots of falls and they have hallucinations. They have more visual and auditory hallucinations and they you know they're seeing faces and snakes and spiders and funny things like that which is not that common in alzheimer's dementia bpsd is very common and i would never ever have a day where i'm not asked to help someone who's calling out or following people around or crying or paranoid etc and i'll talk later about how palliative care is really different in dementia than in other palliative care scenarios so here BPSD definition from the Silver Book, which is actually an excellent resource, I must say. Aggression, agitation, anxiety, apathy, depression, disinhibited behaviours, nocturnal disruption, psychotic symptoms, vocally disruptive behaviours and wandering. So that's the average nursing home scenario. Lots of people refusing care. There's agitation and aggression. Lots of people up at night not sleeping. There are people who are psychotic with Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, Interestingly enough, the most common, I suppose, delusion would be that someone's stolen something. So most people will feel that someone's stolen their car keys or their clothes or their jewellery. The second most common is, and which is very common, is that their husband or wife is having an affair. And that's very distressing for families, you know, devoted husbands and wives and extended families. And I've seen that a few times and that's something, or both of those are something that would warrant antipsychotic treatment. Vocal disruptive behaviours, yelling out, help me, help me, help me. I did have a lady who was given midazolam, which was an end-of-life order, but she was given it every night in the evening because she was yelling out that she was cold, which once again is not a good idea to give midazolam to people because they're cold. So we need to be really careful with what we chart and what we get our registrars to chart. And I think just being clear on the charts is important and wondering as well. How I would treat, and this is how all the geriatricians I know would, what they would do. And if I ring hospital, this is the first thing they'll do. They'll never say to me, start respiridone or start a medication. They'll always go through this checklist. So it's really good to always to get your registrars asking about it and talking about it. And in the few facilities that they know me well now, they'll actually come to me and say, this person's yelling out all the time and they're not in pain, blah, 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 their bowels are good because they're so sick of me asking all these questions. But look at the triggers. Are they in pain? You know, so often you see the bowels haven't been open for five days. Look at their medications, which we'll talk about later. Drug alcohol withdrawal, especially on a discharge from a hospital. Electrolyte abnormalities, I've just written hyponatremia. I got a lady this week who became quite paranoid and said the staff were trying to poison her and then I got a call and I did some bloods and the next day I got a call from pathology that her sodium was 113 um, and that was the only indication that we had. And when I rang her son, she, he can't see her because of lockdown, but he said, 
this is what happens every time her sodium gets low. She gets really paranoid and we've fluid restricted her and she's actually not paranoid anymore. She's actually a lot better. So I would do all those bloods. I would do a urine as well, which we'll talk about later. But definitely I would do all those looking for hyponatremia. I've never seen anybody with paranoia due to hypercalcemia, but I check it anyway. What else do you tell your registrars to do? You know, it's all those things that sound really boring, but it's really important. I always ask facilities to contact Dementia Australia, and that's the first thing the geriatricians will do as well. Dementia Australia have amazing resources. They will come in and they'll one-to-one special care someone. They have headsets that they give people. They have lots of Andre Rios DVDs, the guy playing the violin that everyone loves. They will give them to the patient. They have geriatricians on board so they can escalate it really quickly to a geriatrician. So I would always document in the notes, please contact Dementia Australia for support. And they support the staff a lot too. And they'll come in and just make simple changes. I had one lady who kept on attacking another lady repeatedly and actually broke her arm and it became quite distressing for everybody. And Dementia Australia came in and suggested putting a hat on this second lady and they did and it never happened again. It was just really obvious things that they could support the staff in. Can I ask a question about their role in the community, Julie? I know mm-hmm. we're talking about residential aged care facilities, but just thinking about is their role pretty targeted towards aged care facilities in terms I, of that kind of level of care? I don't know if they actually have one-on-one care in the community, but they have a lot of resources. If you just look on that, their website, they have carers' resources and carers can self-refer as well. So it doesn't have to be. No, I spoke to one of the nurses the other day, said oh, she needs a doctor's referral, and I looked on the website and the carer can refer. So they certainly have a lot of resources. So I don't know if they can do one-on-one care in a home, but they can certainly go and assess someone, I would think. I haven't really cared for many people at home. The few people I have at home with dementia, it's really hard work, obviously, to, to care for them. So when do you use psychotropic medications? I always ask for help and I might be a little bit paranoid, but I've probably been to too many lectures from geriatricians. I think early on I was at a lecture by Henry Pradati, who's down in Prince Henry in Sydney, and he said you need documented consent for everyone you start on an antipsychotic medication. And so it kind of really made me think, oh, I can't just start everyone on Respiridone. I would only use Respiridone or medications like that for hallucinations and delusions. I wouldn't use it for, you know, wandering and even agitation, I wouldn't use it for agitation. And I would always seek help, even if it's a phone support from somebody. And usually, you know, I would start at 0.25 daily. And they usually suggest, you know, when when do people ramp up? I would start at three o'clock because most people get worse in the evenings. I would document the notes, monitor for adverse effects, such as sedation, postural hypertension, movement issues, falls, and I would write in my reminders in the best practice wean in three months. And I've done that a few times in the last probably month or so, and we've weaned it before that because the patients have got better. I don't know in other states, but certainly in New South Wales after the Royal Commission and lots of changes, most, nearly all the nursing homes I work at are very unkeen to start those medications because of the changes and they'll actually really, they'll actually be the ones to say, can we stop that medication now, which is good because there's not a huge amount of evidence that they work. I said earlier on PRN is not great, but I do prescribe PRN when weaning. So I'll do it for three months and then I'll write 
in the notes. I'll make it PRM once a day for a week just so there's something there because the last thing you want is someone flaring up and then calling an after-hours doctor or ending up in hospital, which causes a lot of trauma. So, it's, I mean, it is a real balance because at the end of the day, some people really need these medications and I think some people really benefit from these medications, but I'm pretty careful with them. Probably the best the antidepressant or anti-anxiety agent that's used most is citalopram in aged care. It's meant to be a lot cleaner and have less side effects and drug interactions. Mirtazapine is fantastic in aged care and palliative care. We use it a lot in palliative care as well. It's sedating at the lower doses. So at the lower doses, the antihistamine effects are more effective. So 7.5 milligrams is actually more sedating than 15 milligrams. And I would use that and palliative care colleagues would use that quite a bit because it helps sleep, it improves appetite. It's kind of, I always say to my patients, it's not the things you want in a teenage girl, but they are the things that you want in aged care where people haven't got much of an appetite and people aren't sleeping well. So I would use that. And I'm noticing all the specialists are using that as well. I'll move right along. Delirium, I won't talk about a lot because it's, it's kind of similar, but I know it's different, but it's similar kind of looking for the triggers, et cetera. And I'm a bit of a fan of shortcuts, which is what I'm doing at five in the morning is putting my shortcuts in. It's a shortcut, which is literally cut out of my best practice, which I put in the notes and I put all my notes directly into the nursing homes, clinical notes. So everyone can see it. And it's pretty clear that what we're doing, don't give PRN medication unless consultation with the clinical manager, look for pain, fever, UTIs and constipation. I do that, but I try to encourage other people to do that too. I think we're on to Grace. Well, Grace is well, and she sounds like she is the resident of the day. I don't know if other people have that, but where everywhere I go, they have a resident of the day where they get all their clothes washed and they, I don't know what happens, they maybe get their curtains washed or something, get their, their room steam cleaned, but they also get a UA and a weight. That's what happens when you're the resident of the day. And they often have a little sign on their door which says resident of the day. And so she must have been resident of the day. This happens once a month, I think. And her urine dipstick has showed leukocytes. Your registrar asks which antibiotic is best to use in nursing home patients, which is a pretty good question. So what would we say to our registrar? Would we just tell her to ignore the dipstick? Would we send the urine, starting antibiotics, await results? Look, urinary tract infections is really hard in elderly because on one hand we're told these figures that 20 to 50% of women over 70 will have asymptomatic bacteria. And there's lots and lots of studies saying, you know, why not to treat it? There's high incidence of symptomatic UTI over the next three months. There's no difference in colonisation, et cetera. Our patients aren't pregnant. So the underlying thing, and this is in therapeutic guidelines and choosing wisely, and there's a whole NPS, National Prescribing, article about it, is not to treat and not to test. So I would not treat or, you know, and the first question is I ask is why did they do it? And if they've got no really good reason, I wouldn't treat. Now, I, there was an article in therapeutic guidelines that don't treat asymptomatic bacteria, but also said dysuria is, is probably the best symptom. Don't just go on confusion. You need confusion and something else and increased behaviours and, and something else. And dysuria is the best indicator, which is, it is really hard. For a number of reasons, one is that these people can't often voice it. They've got dysuria. Older people don't mount fevers as, as much. So it is, it is a bit hard. Um, and the other thing that other people might have found is that I have 
nearly every week people that end up in hospital and they get started on antibiotics in the emergency department and sent home and then I look like I've been ignoring a UTI. One lady actually got sent with SATs of 85% and shortness of breath and cough and she came home with a urinary tract infection. So it's really hard because, you know, you can't say who has and who doesn't, but I suppose that's the guidelines. And I is certainly I wouldn't treat resident of the day. I think Grace, I wouldn't have treated Grace. I would have said monitor. If she had that urine sent off, she would have grown something, but it would have been asymptomatic bacteria. And most of the pathology companies will say that on the form now. It'll actually say recommended not to treat, or the ones here will. It's interesting, Julie, because to both those cases, one, the response being ignore and ask the nursing staff not to do that. And the second one, often with Yin asking about medication treatment might be because the staff have asked, you know, can we start something? I presume there's often quite a bit of pressure, reasonable or otherwise, our nursing home staff to prescribe or to do things that they feel is in the best interest of the resident. But in fact, like treating for asymptomatic bacteria or starting PRN, risperidone, maybe not best practice. And, and the registrar probably who's new and inexperienced finds that a pretty difficult situation to be in. Would you have observed that, you know, that sense of yep. an experienced nursing home staff member and a very inexperienced, uncomfortable registrar? Yeah, definitely. I think the push to give, well, certainly where I am, the push to give risperidone has reduced a lot because of recent studies and because there's so much paperwork to go with it, which I'll talk about later, that it's a huge hassle for everybody. The push against antibiotics, is I'm often pushed and other people have pushed to give antibiotics and I think it's a, it's a really hard call and I think registrars generally unless things have changed a lot since I was a registrar registrars are often straight out of hospital and it's a completely different mindset to working in a hospital as part of a team I mean you would never see someone in a hospital with any of these symptoms and not treat them I guess as much as anything I'm thinking the registrar may need not just clinical guidance but you know, advocacy and support maybe to negotiate some of these possible pressures in dealing with things that they might not feel best practice. This is Leo. Leo's 89 and this is a Monday morning at the surgery. I don't know what happens with most supervisors are here, whether they have a day dedicated to aged care or whether they just get multiple emails and faxes. My kids tell me that the only people in the world that still fax in nursing homes. So now we're on to Leo. It's a Monday morning and Leo's had a bad weekend. He's had multiple episodes of dyspnea. The after-hours GP was called or the hospital or whoever, depending on where people are, and they gave some statfrizomide and they suggested that the GP reviews within 24 hours, which I always love. So you're the GP. He has a long history of CCF and he's recently been discharged from hospital after an exacerbation of CCF. So you're suspecting CCF. Since then, he's been bed-bound. He's got severe peripheral edema, sure everyone's seen those terrible legs. He's hypoxic with SATs of 89%. He's in quite a bit of distress. And the RN is wanting urgent review. Well, we can even add that we're in the middle of a COVID clinic now, or can we send him to hospital? And he's one of those people that bounces back. You know, he's been to hospital lots of times and he always bounces back and, you know, gets back to playing bingo, et cetera. So, I mean, this is a pretty common scenario for me, I'm sure for everybody. And it's something that would cause a lot of anxiety for the average registrar. So I suppose, what would you do? Would you get him to hospital urgently? Would you try to get bloods if you can get a mobile chest X-ray and get some urgent bloods? You could always do a BNP, beta natriuretic peptide. Or would you try to talk about to Leo and his family about his treatment wishes? So would you try to get an advanced care directive and talk 
to his family. This is common all the time, but I suppose it's just a good thing to talk about what we would do. How many BNPs have you ordered, Julie Mallinson? I ordered one once because my husband suggested it because he's an emergency doctor, but I didn't know they had to pay for it and then I got in big trouble from the patient. But registrars who are straight out don't realise. So I have had people wanting to order BNP. So this is fantastic that 71% would look at the advanced care directives. That's because we everyone knows we're up to palliative care. But at this stage, you probably couldn't really do that, but that's the right answer. But I suppose it really shows the usefulness of knowing the patients and knowing the families. And that's something that you as a supervisor would know as a longitudinal thing rather than registrars coming for every six months. And you can look longitudinally at the patients and know, and especially GPs in small country towns or in small practices that know families and et cetera. It's really beneficial to know what people are planning ahead of time and have those conversations before a Monday morning when basically your default has to be off to hospital. And then if he doesn't bounce back this time, it's hard for everybody. Talking to people like Leo's family and Leo who bounce back. I mean, the cancer trajectory, yeah, obviously people in aged care facilities still get cancer, but Leo's bounced back many times. But there will be a day where he doesn't bounce back and it's really hard to predict that day. So the time to talk to him about advanced care directives and what he wants to do is one of his declines when he comes back. I show people and say, look, Dad, or you were going downhill. You do bounce back, but you're not bouncing back to where you were. And what are your feelings about hospital? No, don't give them a form and say CPR, yes or no, straight up, but what are your feelings? And some people will just clearly say, I never want to go to hospital again. I've had a good innings, et cetera, et cetera. And some people will clearly say, I want everything done. And it's just talking around that conversation. And I think this is probably one of the hardest things for the registrars when I was training registrars is unless they've done a specific palliative care term or geriatric term, they haven't had these conversations and kind of not treating everything and giving people a choice is kind of a little bit foreign and a bit scary because we kind of feel like we're saying, well, there's nothing we can do. So I do try to do this, especially in those chronic disease people, before they have that final bounce because I would prefer to be the one that sits and has that conversation with Leo and his family than an emergency doctor who basically says there's nothing we can do, you're here for 24 hours and we can't treat you, et cetera. So I do try to do that. And it's easier said than done. It's a really basic palliative care. And I think, as I said before, I found that was the hardest thing for registrars because registrars just haven't had experience generally. I always talk to families and there's never been a family that I've regretted not talking to, if that makes sense. Like, you know, I ring families, I ring them from the nurse's room and put them on speakerphone. You know, in, in the days pre-COVID where they could come in, I would talk to them. And most families, 99%, are very reasonable and really glad to speak to you. I prescribe a little bit. You know, you don't need to be a palliative care doctor to write a little bit of morphine and midazolam if people have decided they don't want to go to hospital. I see some meds that aren't adding to their quality of life, so people aren't struggling, swallowing statins and multiple PPIs and other medications that aren't adding to their actual quality of life. I review them regularly. So most of my palliative care people I would in contact daily with the nurses and say, you know, whether it's a phone call or email, just saying, how are they going? Have they needed lots of extra medications? And use the resources available, which I'll share. The basic morphine, adazolam, glycoperolate, which I'm sure most people would be comfortable using small doses. We all use just small doses. The main thing I would say is 
be careful of using morphine in people who have a GFR below 40 because they can get a really terrible accumulation of the metabolites and get quite shaky and lots of myoclonic jerks and it can be quite uncomfortable with that. So we would use hydromorphone, subcut. Obviously, if they're already on opioids, then divide by six to get the PRN dose of the total daily dose. People always ask, do you leave a patch on? I wouldn't take a patch off. I would leave a patch on and just give them these as well if they're already on a patch. It's just having the resources, I think, and teaching the registrars and I suppose supporting them as well. Therapeutic guidelines is fantastic as well, actually, for palliative care. It's really good. So 95-year-old Elaine is on 15 different medications. She's constipated and has had reduced cognition. Which of these three have the highest anticholinergic burdens? First group would be olanzapine, solifenacin and amitriptyline. The next would be loratadine, peroxidine and prochlorperazine. And the last group would be mirtazapine, quetiapine and metoclopramide. So which of these groups would have the highest anticholinergic burden scale? I just thought it was interesting. I actually had to look all those up. I don't know them all off the top of my head, but I was interested that solifenacin has a really high anticholinergic burden, which you would think it doesn't because we all know ditropan does, but it does too. Peroxetine is a lot higher than any of the other SSRIs. So I just think it's something to bear in mind. Like I don't calculate it for every person, but I think it's really important to look at. I know the specialists will often look at meds and do that. So falls is also something we see all the time. It's similar in a way to delirium and BPSD that we need to look for a trigger, ensure the physio is looking after them, etc. Falls always, or in our state, are notified to the doctor and the next of kin. So while I'm at this, I'll probably get five emails saying people have fallen tonight. I'm not sure what we're meant to do with that, but we're aware. And if there's recurrent falls, obviously we need to act. Obviously with every email about a fall, I wouldn't do blood tests for each person every time, but certainly I would look at these contributing factors, polypharmacy, infections, incontinence. Postural hypertension is huge. Hyponatremia is huge in causing falls. The most evidence to prevent falls is actually getting cataract surgery, which is really interesting because they're multifactorial. Looking at all these other things is really important. I would do basic bloods if I haven't done them recently. As I said, not with each fall. I always check the electrolytes. Always check vitamin D. There's some evidence that vitamin D, optimising vitamin D level can prevent falls. As I said, refer for cataract surgery. One of my frequent fallers had a massive fall and unfortunately had a huge intracerebral bleed and accreditation weren't very happy about that. But I had written this shortcut in about a month ago and they hadn't checked postural blood pressure. I think it was a week or two before, but it hadn't been checked. But I was kind of glad that I had brought these things up and we had done everything that we could do to prevent falls. And at the end of the day, people with these diseases will fall. But if we can reduce the falls, then that's fantastic. Medical legal issues... I don't talk to the family with every change, but I certainly do if I'm commencing psychotropic medications. I think this is an area that the supervisors can really, really support their registrars in. It's pretty scary talking to families, and especially you as supervisors would know the families, especially, you know, in country towns or where everybody, family is often your practice patients or you've actually known this patient for a long time and they've been Betty or Beryl or whoever has been your patient for 20 years and is now in a nursing home. So supporting and knowing the background and talking to the families is really helpful. Tips to having the conversation, because that's something we would do every week, is talking about end of life and talking about 
power of attorney and being the power of attorney is such a huge responsibility, I suppose. And it causes a lot of distress when people have to say, I don't want CPR, I don't want hospital. And one thing I heard on a podcast I use all the time is that Leo or Betty, you're there to make the decision that they would have wanted. So what would they have wanted 20 years ago? And I often say, you know, what would Betty have wanted? If her 60-year-old self could see her now, what would she want to do? And they'll always, well, nearly always say, oh, she wouldn't want to go to hospital. She's always said... But I think children have this huge burden of guilt and feel like they'll always say, oh, you know, I don't want to say no CPR because, you know, it's kind of giving them a life sentence. So turning it around and saying, you know, this person has trusted you and loved you so much that you're the person that's to know what they wanted. And I find that's really useful um, because I think there's a lot of guilt. I think, I don't know, 20 years ago, I don't think families were given the choices. I don't think families of 97-year-olds who were bed-bound and incontinent and not speaking were asked, do you want mum to go to hospital? I think it was made the doctors knew best, and that's not always right, but I think these families now are making these really hard decisions and feeling a lot of guilt about these decisions. So that's my little talking to family chat. Death certificates, yeah, always taking into account what the family would prefer to see e.g. if someone's dying of renal failure don't write dehydration certificate and I suppose that's something to really support registrars into because it's a really hard decision and registrars may not have done a lot of death certificates especially in such an isolated environment and try to be specific I've had a few talks to the coroner this week you actually can document and say frailty is the cause of death in a person who's been declining over the last, you know, had weight loss, et cetera, an obvious frailty in the last few years, or you can say advanced age if they're over 90. And I think that varies from state to state. But I know in New South Wales, if they're over 90, you can write advanced age now. And that's only recently come in. To talk about choosing wisely. If people don't know of their suite of recommendations around best practice and reducing low-value care, then have a look at their website. And I think it probably does lead into the polypharmacy, more than five medications increase your risk of falls, et cetera. But the polypharmacy does lead into my coming up paperwork because paperwork is a huge burden and signing millions of med charts and doing scripts. But this is the time that you can teach your registrars to make it a consult. There's a lot of people complaining that it's unpaid work and it is if you just sign the charts and go home. But if you actually sit down and go, okay, why is this person on a PPI? Why is this person on the statin that's high dose? Oh, look at their blood pressure, because you've also got to sign a blood pressure directive at the same time. Hopefully it's the same time. Um, why are they on three antihypertensives when their blood pressure is 110 on 70, etc.? So I use that kind of paperwork to do a referral, sign the charts, maybe cancel one or two things, and say, review the patient rather than just going, oh, gosh, I've got another hour of signing charts to do. So I would try to just de-prescribe. And it's amazing what you find when you delve into things. I found someone who was on Zyrtec for 10 years because she had an itchy bite when she was in general practice and she went and someone started Zyrtec and it got translated by everyone, including me, for years onto multiple med charts. And it wasn't harming her, but it certainly wasn't helping her. Her itchy bite was better by then. There's heaps of really good de-prescribing tools there's apps as well. This is one from Tasmania. There's a New South Wales one too. And there's lots of fact sheets from everything. I would use the statins, proton pump inhibitors, or definitely benzodiazepines, etc. But there's lots of things that can be de-prescribed. There's lots of teaching plans, GPSA, to help de-prescribing and diagnosing, etc. 
and we put together a care of residential aged care facility residents teaching plan to accompany Julie's presentation. So those of you who are inspired by this, you can download that from the website and talk to your registrar using that as a bit of a guide. I still haven't answered the question on how to encourage registrars, but aged care work is a lot of paperwork and a lot of hard work, but it's also very fulfilling and people are very grateful and it's very complex, interesting work. And most of the registrars that I've trained are actually continuing to do aged care. It's a day out of the surgery. There's lots of reasons to do aged care on paperwork and how much there is and what do we do. As I've alluded to, my way of dealing with it without having too many nervous breakdowns is making it part of the consult. So NIMS, most people will know, nurse-initiated medications, self-administered medications, the psychotropic forms, well, we should be looking at psychotropic meds every three months anyway. There's diabetic forms, there's blood pressure forms, there's paperwork where you need to sign their diagnosis list. I make shortcuts. I also make sure that I use the item numbers that are available, always use medication reviews to the RMRs and they're really helpful. Pharmacists are pretty keen to do them and they're really, really helpful to look at deprescribing. The 707 is the comprehensive medical assessment um, and that's a 40-minute comprehensive medical assessment. And a lot of that, if you're doing all the other stuff, you've got the diagnosis list, you've got the blood pressure directive. So it's all kind of comes together and it's not too onerous and it's a really good way to go, well, actually, I have done the Jared depression scale, all the staff have done that and we have looked at the blood pressure, etc. And the 731 is the contribution to care plan and that's a three-monthly billing. And I'm sure most people know about that, but every three months you can bill a 731 because you're contributing to the care plan. And the ways you can contribute is signing the diabetic form and is doing the blood pressure form as long as it's documented in your notes that you're doing that every three months. Always make sure the paperwork's available for the round and make that part of the consult, as I said, because you can make that, you can be there and see the patient and sign the forms and review their blood pressure all at once rather than getting lots of little emails or faxes throughout the week. And I don't know if people got much to say what charting scripts, but if you can get electronic charts and scripts, it's life-changing. So I, I do all my scripts and charts now on my phone or on the computer. I don't actually handwrite any charts or scripts, including S8s, and that's just a huge time saver, but it's safer and it's less likely to make errors as well. For one of the forms I do, I just document, you know, this is a shortcut, so it just says that they're having a good response, they don't have any side effects, the family aware of potential side effects, including sudden cardiac death, which looks a bit much, but it's true, and they're happy to continue medication. And then the facility are using all non-pharmacologicals. You can actually use the paperwork to have good medicine for the patients. And I, I feel if you're doing that and doing it right and reviewing their medications regularly, then that's good for everybody. I think that's all I have to say. Thank you very much, Julie, for a Thank great you. talk. You've covered a lot of ground and some really good tips there. And I'm hoping that you've inspired the experienced supervisors in this field and those maybe who are keen to support their registrars and are not yet doing that to provide best practice care to their nursing home residents. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. 
Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.